Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. The name Wayland Gawthorpe might not ring a bell to many of our audience, but he was a wonderful and effective evangelist of yesteryear. This sermon was preached back in 1989 at the God's Bible School and College camp meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he titles this sermon, The Names of Jesus. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. It's a dangerous thing, I guess, for preachers to say, but I do intend to be brief and have the good intentions of being that way. My father used to say that, and it seemed like every time he said that, you just as well get ready for about an hour or so. Uh, one of two things usually happened. The Lord helped him to preach, and he went on for an hour. As he got in the brush for it, it took him so long to hack his way out. But uh, I trust the latter not happened this afternoon. I, I do intend to... Uh, be brief this evening, but I want to uh, draw your attention to the book of St. Matthew, if you'd like to stand, if you would please. And we're going to read from chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 18, and read through verses 25. The book of St. Matthew, chapter uh, 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> and the scripture reads as us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise... When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found the child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for well, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bid him, bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Father in heaven, we ask thee that you would help us to glorify Jesus this afternoon. We pray that you would make this a profitable time. 
And we ask thee that you would help us to say those things that you would have us to say. And then when the service is finished, we'll certainly give you all the praise for we're asking in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Now, I wonder this afternoon how many like their given name. I'll not ask you to raise your hand for most of the folk I talk with seem to not care too much about their given name. And I'll have to admit that I'm not real uh, enamored with my given name. Uh, when I tell people my name, they look at me sort of funny most of the time, and they ask me to repeat it. And maybe I have to repeat it three or four times, and still they don't get a handle on it. But uh, I got my name, uh, not at my choosing, but because I was born at the time of a state senator in the state of Illinois whom my father liked real well. And his name was C. Whalen Brooks, and so as my dad liked him real well, he thought that that would be a good, good name for me, so he named me Wayland. Uh, if I ever meet the fella or ever met the fella, I don't think I'd ever shake hands with him for it. I don't appreciate that name too much, but anyhow, uh, most of us, I think, probably don't like a name too well. But anyhow, uh, names do have meaning. I wonder how many of us uh, realize or know what our name means. You know what your name means? I was uh, questioning here some time ago as to what mine meant. I didn't know what it meant at all, so I looked it up somewhere and I found that it means land between the ways so that uh, means that I'm that strip of ground between the two sides of the interstate and when you're going down the interstate you see that middle part that's me I'm the Midian there's a sign along the way that says keep off the Midian and so please do that for if you run on that you're running on me and as you go down the road please don't throw out your empty pop cans and gum wrappers and candy wrappers and all those things for when you do you throw it on me but uh, most of us, I think, give little thought as to the, na as to the uh, naming of our children other than perhaps we think a name is pretty or we uh, have ancestors that we have thought a great deal of, and so we give the names to our children in those areas, uh, thinking little about the meaning of the name. But it was not so in ancient Israel, quite different in the time of ancient Israel, for names had uh, indeed some sometimes tremendous meanings. Uh, sometimes they were given by divine revelation to convey a message to God's people. God often spoke, spoke to mothers and dads and revealed to them that they had ought to give their children particular names as uh, conveying a message to God's people. And so it is with the names of our Lord. Now there are three divinely ordained names which uh, have been given to our Lord and each one symbolizes some aspect of his ministry. And so, first of all, uh, we see that he was indeed Christ. As we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, St. Matthew. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Indeed, the name Christ is very, very significant. Uh, it is in Greek, and I'm not here to try to give you a lesson in Greek this afternoon, for that was not one of my long suits when I was in college. I did learn enough of it to pass the examinations, and therefore get my uh, diploma, but that's about the best I can say. But anyhow, they say that the, work, the word Christ in Greek is Christos, which means anointed. And so Christ came indeed fulfilling uh, the anointed offices of God. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed by God Almighty. There was the office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. And so Jesus, or rather Christ, the name Christ being anointed or means, meaning anointed uh, means that Jesus has, or Christ has fulfilled all of these three functions. 
He was indeed the great prophet of God, and he is our high priest, and he is indeed the king of glory, and shall one day be the king of the entire world and universe. Uh, Christ has fulfilled all of these uh, functions of the office. As the prophet, he was indeed the anointed one of God to preach the gospel and bring the way of salvation to the, to the hearts of mankind. Now, when we use the term prophet, I think most of the time our minds go to the definition of, of prophecy or the prophet as being one who uh, foresees great futuristic events and prophesies of doom and things like that. And that is indeed uh, the meaning of the prophet, of the name prophet. But there is another meaning likewise, and that is that a prophet is also a preacher, a, a one who proclaims the word of God, one who preaches the truth, one who proclaims the message of redemption and salvation. And so Jesus indeed was the great prophet of God. He was anointed of God to be the prophet in bringing salvation. Uh, preaching the way of salvation to the hearts of mankind. We read in the book of, uh, of uh, St. John how it was that uh, Jesus was indeed the great prophet of God uh, as he uh, spoke the way of salvation or presented the way of salvation to Nicodemus. In chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees, Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Then Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Or as the marginal reading has it, that word again, it means to be born from above. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born from above. So Jesus was the great prophet anointed of God coming and proclaiming the way of salvation and redemption. If men are to be saved, they must be born again. And that experience is affected as men come to Jesus and there in confession of their sins and repenting of their sins, they trusting him by faith. They are born again, made new creatures in Christ, they pass from spiritual death unto spiritual life. But at one time a man was dead in trespasses and sins as he confesses his sins and repents of those sins and trusts God. He being born again passes from spiritual death into newness of life, spiritual eternal life. So Jesus is indeed or Christ is indeed the great prophet and honor of God to present the gospel, the truth that men must be born again. He came proclaiming the way of salvation and redemption. And also he was anointed as the high priest, anointed of God to fulfill the function of the office of the priesthood. It was in the Old Testament times, once a year, the high priest would go into the temple or the sanctuary and in the holy place a preparation was made as a lamb had been slain 
uh, a firstborn of the flock, lamb, male, without spot or blemish, as, his, as he was then slain, his blood was mixed with water. And then the responsibility of the high priest was to take that blood and water into the Holy of Holies. And there sprinkle that blood on the altar and the, the, uh, the uh, horns of the altar. And in doing so, then there was a remission for the sins of Israel. Once a year, the high priest went into that Holy of Holies and made that offering and sacrifice unto God, unto God that men might have their sins in remission. And so Jesus has fulfilled that office as he was anointed by God to become our high priest and uh, to make a, an offering of himself and a sacrifice of, of himself as he was the high priest, the priest entering into the Holy of Holies as he was uh, crucified on the hill of Golgotha outside the city of Jerusalem. Golgotha became the temple of the Lord or the sanctuary and as he was hung on the cross, it became the altar of God and as the Roman soldier took the spear and pierced his side and a wound opened up, then all the water and blood of his body gushed out and there a fountain opened and sprinkled on the altars of God that men can come and be saved from all of their sins and transgressions and made new creatures in Christ. So he has fulfilled this function likewise in that he has, is the high priest having gone unto God on the cross and offered himself there a lamb to be slain from the foundation of the world that men might know their sins to be forgiven. Thank God for him being our high priest today and we can come to him and he will forgive our sins and our transgressions. But then also he was anointed to be the king. He was indeed king of heaven as he sat upon the throne of God. But as he descended to this old world in human flesh and human form, he then became a man as you and I. But at his crucifixion and then burial and resurrection, after 40 days, he ascended back to the right hand of God the Father, back upon the throne, and he is today the King of heaven. He is acknowledged not so in the world today, but there is coming a time when all of mankind will recognize him as being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Men may not acknowledge it now and refuse to do so, but the scripture declares to us that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He will be crowned king of kings one of these days. And so he is indeed anointed king from God Almighty to govern and to rule and to reign. So his name is called Christ. Now secondly, his name was to be called Jesus. As we read in St. Matthew chapter 1, and verse 21, the angel of the Lord said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now the Greek word Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. So briefly it is so, Jesus means Savior. 
And the scriptures say that he shall save his people from their sins. Who are the people of God that he has been sent to save? Who are to be saved? Now the answer to that question, first of all, is that the Jews are to be saved. He came to the Jews in order to save them. Uh, he came that they might receive salvation and redemption. As he so plainly stated in the book of St. Mark, chapter 7, beginning at verse 24, the scriptures say, And from thence he arose and went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into a house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. But a certain woman whose daughter, uh, whose young daughter, had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Now the emphasis of this portion of Scripture is that Jesus came to seek and to save his own. He came to his own to save them. He came to the Jews to save them from their sins. However, it is said he came to his own, but his own received him not. They rejected him as being the Messiah and their Redeemer and Savior. It's vitally important and thrilling to know that uh, we have been included in this wonderful plan of redemption and salvation. Look at Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled, speaking of the Jews, that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh of the Jews and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the re re reconciliation, or reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not again the branches, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say them, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. In the Apostle Paul's writings right here, he is making it very plain that we who are of the Gentiles 
have been included in the plan of redemption and salvation because his name is Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. Thank God for this wonderful working of his grace that we can be saved from our sins. It was back in February 1962. I returned from the country of Germany while serving in the United States Army, and I was discharged in New York City, and I returned home. Uh, a few months before I returned home, I was under deep conviction. I was a backslider away from God, and I promised God while I was still in Germany, if he'd let me cross the Atlantic waters and let me live through that experience, and if I could get home, I'd give him my heart and my life. I was under such deep conviction, I wanted God more than anything else in the world. When I got home upon the mercies of God, I began to attend revival meetings, and I began to go to church and began to date a young lady who later became my wife. And we began to go to revival meetings for about a month this went on. And in that uh, course of time, a period of time, I sought the Lord. I did not come to a public altar in the beginning. But we began to attend a revival meeting in the Pilgrim Holiness Church in Urbana, Illinois. And I do remember the evangelist very, very well. It was uh, Reverend John Church, and I think probably some of you know him. I'm not talking about the Methodist evangelist, but rather the evangelist that was in the Pilgrim Holiness Church, Reverend John Church. I have no idea what Brother Church preached in that revival meeting. I was under such deep conviction. I wanted God, and I wasn't listening too close to what men said. My old heart was aching, and under such a load and burden, I wanted to get rid of that weight and that guilt and that burden. I began to seek God at the altar in that uh, Pilgrim Holiness Church in Urbana, Illinois. I made my way to the altar one night, and while I was kneeling there at the altar, I did what I knew you were supposed to do. I knew you were supposed to confess your sins, and I knew you were supposed to repent of your sins, and I knew you were supposed to give your sins up. I'd heard that preached over and over again, and I knew what it took to get to God. Now, I did that night. I confessed every sin that came to my mind. I indeed repented. I was sorrowful for my sins. And I mean it was godly sorrow. I was so sorry I intended never to do it again. I never intended to break the laws and the commands again. I intended to give up my sin and never go contrary to the laws and the commands again in my entire life. Under that deep conviction, I had given up my sins. I, know you're suppo I knew you were supposed to do that. So I had given my sins up. I had quit using tobacco. I had quit drinking what little I did drink. And my conversation changed. My language changed. I used to take the name of the Lord in vain. I tried to on one occasion when I got back to the States. My brother came down to see me. He and I were together. We were sitting in an automobile together talking. And he was not a Christian, never has been. I'm trusting one of these days he shall be. But as he and I sat there in a conversation, I tried to curse as he did. But as I tried to curse, the words would not come out of my mouth. I was under such deep conviction. 
I could not take the name of the Lord in vain. Out of that deep conviction, I straightened up and started living right, just as right as I knew how. I quit going to the movies. I quit going to the theater. I didn't watch the movies, whether it was in the theater or in the home. I gave them up. I had no interest at all in the movie industry. I lost that desire entirely and completely. I had given up my sin. I was trying my very best to live right and do right. That first night at the altar, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. But I left the altar that night with a sense of guilt and burden still upon my heart. I did not feel I was saved. I had that guilt and that burden yet on my soul. I came back a second time in that revival meeting, and I knelt at the altar again the second time, and I did what I'd done the first time. I confessed all of my sins. I repented of my sins. I'd already given them up. I didn't know what else to do. I prayed and prayed and prayed that night at the altar, but I did not get through. When I left the altar, I still had the sense of guilt and burden bearing down upon my soul. I came back a third time in that revival meeting and announced the altar, and that third time I didn't have too much to say. I had prayed out. I had already confessed my sins. I had given up my sins. I had repented my sins. I didn't know what else to do. I came to the end of myself. As I was kneeling at the altar that night, my father happened to be kneeling right in front of me. Well, I don't guess it was just happenstance. He was there, and he knelt right in front of me. And as I ceased to pray after a short prayer, he heard that I'd ceased to pray, and then he said to me, Waylon, raise your head and look at me. So I did. I raised my head and looked at my dad. And then my dad asked me this question. He said, Waylon, can't you believe God? Now, I don't know exactly what happened, but I do remember my eyes left his, and I looked up toward the ceiling in that Pilgrim Holiness Church in Abandon, Illinois, and something turned over on the inside of me, and my spirit began to rise, and my faith began to take hold, and it seemed like the spirit started coming down, and we met that right at the ceiling. And I tell you, my friend, I knew I was saved. I knew that my sins were gone. They had been blotted out entirely and completely, and I was indeed a new creature in Christ. And I was made a son of God, a child of the living God through the new birth experience, all because Jesus has been given to us, and he has come that he might save his people from all their sins. Not only can we have a a saving experience, but also there is a saving from all sin. The sin nature, the reason for men transgressing God's laws and God's commands in the very beginning is because of a nature in the heart that is contrary to God, a nature that is called enmity by the Apostle Paul, that is not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. And that nature being enmity against God and not subject to the laws of God, men then in turn break God's laws and God's commands. They do it willfully and deliberately. They want to because of that nature in the heart. 
But Jesus has come to save us from that nature. As the writer of the book of Hebrews has stated, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus has died on the cross and shed his blood that you might be cleansed from that enmity that is against God in your soul. So he has come to save his people from their sin and sins. Thank God he has come to save us. Then finally, uh, his name shall be called Emmanuel, as is spoken by the angel of the Lord in chapter 1 and verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, the usual Hebrew word for the, for the name of God in the Old Testament is Elohim. And uh, this name is in the plural, referring to many gods. In the Old Testament, all the gods are the many gods that men worship. And I'm not speaking right now of the one and only God, but rather all the gods or the many gods that men worship uh, outside of God's people. Uh, their names were also uh, uh, Elohim, which is plural, referring to the many, many gods. The names, were, the names of Elohim was given to these many, many gods, as well as the one and only God. However, it is uh, usually the proper name for God uh, Almighty, the one and only true God. But the one and, one and only and true God exists as a trinity. The reason for the name being plural, Elohim, is that God uh, exists as a trinity. He exists as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. And consequently, the name is in the plural. The name Elohim is in the plural. Now, this does speak to the fact and to the doctrine of the trinity. And I uh, have no uh, depth of explanation concerning the Trinity. I've heard some folk try to explain the Trinity, and I really don't just, I just don't quite comprehend and get a hold of it all, what it all is about. Uh, I suppose my mind is just a little shallow or something like that, but I just don't quite comprehend the Trinity. The best I can do with the Trinity is that there have been three dispensations of time. There was the Old Testament period of time in which God the Father dealt with the human race. And then there was that short period of time, 33 and a half years, in which God the Son, he came in the flesh to dwell and live among men. And then after his death, he then was raised from the grave and went back to the right hand of God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit was given. God the Holy Ghost has come. And that dispensation of time has been going since the day of Pentecost and shall continue until Jesus returns again the second time. Now, that's the best I can do in explaining the Trinity. As there are the three dispensations of time, so there has been or there is the Trinity of God Almighty, his name Elohim. But now, the name Elohim in short is El, which is incorporated in the name Emmanuel, which was given to our Lord. Which being interpreted means God with us. Emmanuel means God is with us. What a tremendous thought that God himself is with us. Now you understand who we're talking about. 
We're talking about God Almighty, the holy, just, righteous, almighty God of the universe, the one that is in full charge and control, the holy God that has nothing to do with sin nor sinful mankind. As again, I repeat to the psalmist David, has said that God is angry with the sinner every day. We are separated from God Almighty because of sins. But through Jesus Christ, through his coming and giving himself on the cross, we can have our sins blotted out. And he comes and takes his abiding presence in our heart. And in doing so, then God is with us in our entire living. Not only when we're saved, but also from that moment until Life comes to an end. Jesus is there. God is there. He is in our heart to help us and to sustain us and give us what we need every moment of every day along life's way. I'm glad we're saved, not to be left alone, but we're saved. And when Emmanuel comes, he takes his abiding presence in our heart and he's there continually. God is with us every moment of every day. And God being with us through Christ, every moment of every day, he sustains us and helps us in the times of temptation and testings and trials. And indeed it is so, we shall be tempted and tested and tried along the way. We will have temptations. I wish I could honestly tell you this afternoon that when we get saved and sanctified, the devil dies. And he leaves us alone. But that's not the case. He still is alive and he still is doing all he can to hinder us and dissuade us from the holiness way and keep us out of God's eternal kingdom. But with God in our heart, through Jesus Christ, he will help us and sustain us in the times of temptation. When temptations do come, he will sustain us and help us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the familiar verse 13 is that there hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Temptations will come, but I tell you this afternoon, God being with us will help us in the times of temptation, he will help you to overcome. He being our high priest and being tempted in every point like you, like you and I is able to succor us. He is able to help us. He is able to sustain us. I get a little put out of some of our pastors and our people across the country. Uh, I hear them make excuses for our young people and they say, oh, our poor young people, having such a hard struggle these days. There are so many things out there to tempt them and to test them and to try them. So many temptations that young people have to go through these days. But I tell you, friend, I believe this afternoon whether a person is young or whether he's middle-aged or whether he's old, and no matter the circumstances and the temptations that come, with God in our soul, he is able to bring us through victoriously. We need not make excuses for our young people and excuse their sin and worldliness, 
but tell them there is a grace of God where we can be saved and sanctified and God is with us in the times of temptation and he'll bring you through victoriously. You need not be defeated. God with us will help us and sustain us in the times of temptation. Every generation has had its peculiar times of temptation and peculiar areas of temptation. We have to make up our mind. We're going to mind God and live for God. And God is there to sustain us and help us through the times of temptation along the way. And then there is indeed trials and tragedies that come along. But God being with us will never leave us nor forsake us in the times of tragedy. Misunderstandings and things along the way, he will not leave us alone. But he is there every moment of every day. Though we may not sense his presence, he is yet there. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, and he shall stand by his promise. You can depend on it, my friend. God will not leave you alone. He'll be there. Then, as we approach the greatest event of our lives, that hour of death, when we cross into the realm known as eternity, when we leave time and then enter into the realm known as eternity, I believe that God being with us will sustain us even at that time, at that hour. Now, death is not a pleasant thing. It's the last enemy of man, according to the Scripture. It's the last enemy that we have to triumph over. But through Christ, I believe we can have the grace and the power to triumph over that that. Uh, Tragic hour. It's tragic. I, I know I have heard preachers preach, well, when you die, you know, that you just uh, soar out then to eternity in the presence of Jesus. And I don't doubt that at all. But I tell you, death is not something to look forward to. It is indeed the enemy of man. I think about dying, and I don't want to die. I hope the Lord comes a second time uh, before I die. I don't have to go. I don't want to have to go by the way of the grave. I don't want to experience death. When I was just a young fellow, I used to think about death. And I, especially at night, would lay in my bed thinking about death. And one of the things that plagued me most about death was uh, to realize that uh, my eyes were no longer going to be able to see. And I don't know why, that, why this bothered me so, but as a young fellow, I kept thinking about my eyes. I heard preachers preach, you know, the flesh is going to rot, you know, and go back to the ground. And it always, it always affected my thinking in the air of my eyes. I hate to think that my eye sockets, the sockets in my head in these days that would be no eyeballs that would just, just waste away. That always bothered me. Death, death is not something to look forward to. It is indeed a morbid thing. It does bring sorrow. But I think in the midst of it all, we shall have the sustaining and helping grace of God. He will not forsake us even at that hour. As a pastor, I've seen men leave this world and go into eternity. I've seen the saint, and I've seen the sinner. I've seen them leave the world. I've, uh, I've seen the saint leave this world at the time of death and enter into the presence of the Lord. Uh, I don't know if they're rejoicing. In in, uh, undoubtedly, they were when they got into the presence of Jesus. 
But at the time of the death, I didn't see the fact of rejoicing. But I have seen the sustaining grace of God there at that moment. Now, would you indulge me to tell you one more time, another little paragraph of the darkest chapter of my life that occurred nearly 12 years ago. It concerns the death of my first wife. And I'll tell you this little incident, and that'll be the ending of it all. I'll not mention it anymore. But uh, the last day of her life, uh, I arose early. I didn't know it was going to be the last day of her life at all. I arose early, as all the other mornings. I'll give you a little bit of explanation. Some of you folks have not heard me say it before, but anyhow, the doctor diagnosed her with cancer. And he said she can't live over four months. And he was right. Well, he didn't quite hit it. He missed it, but one day she died a day early. Didn't quite complete four months. But anyhow, on the day of her death, I got up early. Didn't know, was, didn't know, didn't know it was going to be so. Uh, I ate breakfast. I came back in the room where she was. And she seemed to be very, very quiet that day. Uh, she seemed to be in some, some sort of a, of a coma or semi-coma of some sort. And I uh, got the Bible and I read the Bible to her and I prayed as, we, as I usually did. Uh, that morning, had a devotions. And after devotions, I was sitting there by her side. And she was resting so quietly. And suddenly she sat bolt upright in bed. And looked up toward the ceiling and she said, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus. Now that is indeed a sustaining and helping grace along the way, having lost your first companion. Though the heartache and pain is there, yet I saw her as Jesus came that afternoon at 3.30. The family were gathered in. A pastor was there. I was standing right at the head of her bed. And at 3.30 that afternoon, Jesus came sweetly into that room. And he lifted my wife's spirit and took her with him back into his eternal presence. When he came into that room, the pastor began to shout and praise God. Needless to say, I did no shouting or praising God on that occasion. But there was the presence of Jesus there, so real. And it was a sustaining help and grace to her and to all of us likewise. And what I'm saying is, Emmanuel, God being with us, will sustain us and help us all along the way through our entire living. And when life comes to a close and we experience that time of death, he will not leave us alone, but he shall give us that needed help and grace and strength. I want to reread to you this afternoon our scripture, and then we're going to close. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank God for Jesus today, who is our Savior, our sanctifier, and our keeper. God bless you. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Oh,